Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 88 of the Leadership Window podcast. Can't believe we're into 88 episodes already. Trisha, you've been on one of them. This is your second time around. That means you're special. Uh, Folks, I I can't tell you how excited I have been about this particular episode today. Uh, We're going to get right into it because I got a feeling that if we don't, we'll never finish. And I want to be respectful of my guests' time and of your time and get right to it. I have uh, in the studio today, I just mentioned Trisha. Trisha Richardson is the president and CEO of SC Thrive. It's a nonprofit, a statewide nonprofit here in South Carolina. She's been on the show before. I don't remember which episode, but go back and uh, and look her up. You were in here with Lila Anna Sauls with Homeless No More. And was it Andrea Smith from uh, Senior Action in, um, in Greenville? And we were talking about, we were talking a lot about capital campaigning, I think, and how to lead a nonprofit into buying new buildings and <laughs> fancy stuff and all that. Um, but we, we, we had a really great conversation about the leadership nuances that it takes to do that. And I've been working with Trisha now for a number of years, working with her organization. It's a super honor to get to coach her and her leaders and be at their annual trainings. And so uh, look them up at scthrive.org. And I'm not going to go much more into Trisha's bio. You can go back and, and uh, listen to her previous episode. We are going to focus today on Trisha's father, Colonel William Collier. The uh, Colonel is U.S. Army retired, served 30 years as an artillery officer. His assignments included tours in Korea and Germany, two combat tours in Vietnam, and various stateside assignments including staff and command duties with the 1st Cavalry Division, the 1st Infantry Division that he calls Big Red One. I'll I'll learn a little bit about where that name comes from in a moment. Uh, And uh, the Army General Staff at the Pentagon. Now, I really want you to hear this part. In addition to the Field Artillery Officers Basic and Advanced Courses, Colonel Collier is a graduate of the Armed Forces Staff College and the Army War College. He received the Silver Star, the Legion of Merit, two Bronze Stars, four Meritorious Service Medals, the Air Medal, two Army Commendation Medals, the Vietnam Gallantry Cross with Gold Star, the Vietnam Armed Forces Honor Medal First Class, the Combat Infantryman Badge, the Army Staff Identification Badge, and numerous other service medals and ribbons. And there's one more big one that those that know him think ought to be on the way. But we could talk about that a little bit later, too. Uh, the point is, uh, this is this is a decorated war veteran that we're talking to, and just an extraordinary gentleman. As I'm learning, uh, having had a, a conversation with him and know him a little bit through, of course, his the descriptions of him through his daughter. Uh, but following military retirement, he was then employed in the South Carolina state government for 11 years. Retired from the state transport police, where he was the program manager. Colonel Collier received his BA degree from the University of Richmond in Virginia. Go Spiders. I'm a spider as well. We have that in common. And his master's degree from Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania. Um, 
Tricia, I will start by thanking you for introducing me to the Colonel <laughs> and your father and just a great man and uh, for all the work that you're doing. Thanks for being here with us. Absolutely. And Colonel, I could I could spend the rest of, I could spend an hour and a half thanking you for all that you've done for the country, uh, for your family, for the world, even post-military retirement and all the things that you've continued to do. I really want to thank you for carving out time for us today and coming over here to the studio to record this with us and tell your story. It's, it's just absolutely extraordinary. So thank you both for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. It is uh, fantastic. The book, by the way, is Outnumbered 20 to 1. This is authored by Colonel Bill Collier. And, uh, yep. Outnumbered 20 to one. I, I've, I took me about two days to read it. And that was because I had a lot of stuff, other stuff that I had to do. I could not put it down. It's absolutely extraordinary. I was sitting there the whole time going, this needs to be a movie. This needs to be a movie. It reads like a movie. And yet it is a, uh, it's a documentary and a biography. There's no fiction in here. This is a real life experience. And the, the outnumbered 20 to one refers to a specific battle um, I think you said in the book, it's one of, if not the last major battle that took place in the Vietnam war. And it's the battle at Mo duck. And I'm going to uh, Colonel, I, I've got a number of questions to ask you. We're going to focus certainly on the battle. Cause that's really the crux of the book, but I, I want to, I'd, I'd like to just start a little bit, um, by asking you, boy, there's uh, so many things into your personhood that we can go into. I, I think for time's sake, we'll jump straight into the military aspect. When you were at University of Richmond, you joined the ROTC and then you joined the army. What was the decision? Why join the army at that point in time? Well, the draft was alive and well at that time. So you either, my number was pretty close to the top. Mm. And so uh, instead of uh, trying to dodge that, uh, when I went off to college, I signed up for, I was going to sign up for Naval ROTC because I come from a Navy town. Mm. They had stopped. That was the first year they weren't offering it anymore. So I tried the Air Force. Well, same thing with them. The only thing left was the Army. So I signed up for the Army. I figured better to <clears throat> go in as an officer than uh, with $220 a month pay than uh, enlisted in those days at $88 a month. It sure seems like a good and sensible choice today, <laughs> listening to it put that way. Um, and and you joined on your own terms then, you know, rather than wait to be drafted, which I, I guess you kind of were saying you, you sort of saw the writing on the wall, but yeah. but you went ahead and joined yourself and took that. You had the maturity enough and the wisdom enough to say, if I'm going to do this, let's go in as an officer and do ROTC and prepare myself in advance. <laughs> Preparation is one of the things that I wanted to talk with you a little bit about because you talk about your training um, as an artillery officer. And I, I want to say maybe two and a half years of, of training or at least one portion of it. And what struck me about it is as you were as you're going through the battle and your your other military battle experience. The training is obviously what prepared you for that. And you talked a lot about being being prepared for that and how that training really did set you up and prepare you. Um, talk a little bit about preparation because it seems to me today, we were talking a little bit about generations a little while ago over lunch. It seems to me, this is, this is going to sound terrible because I don't want to judge an entire generation, <laughs> but you know, every generation has a perception of the one that follows them. And I see a lot in my coaching world and my business world. I see a lot of people who want 
immediate. They want to get moved up quickly. You know, in 90 days, a lot of young people are like, I haven't gotten a raise. I haven't gotten a promotion. You know, in a year, they want to be the vice president. And it's like, you know, there's, there's, there's this thing called paying your dues and there's the training and preparation that comes from it. Talk about, you started that early with the ROTC, but how important the training and the preparation was for all that you went through because you lived it. I think my generation was the first ones to sort of leave home and not come back to where they were where they were born and raised and went to school. Well, so many of us didn't. I had no idea what I was getting into when I went to college. Uh, one motivation was that I would go to ROTC, but that bothered me a little bit because I knew I was close to top of uh, being drafted. If I quit college, that was a motivation to stay in. <laughs> because otherwise I knew I'd probably be drafted. Mm. Um, <clears throat> we really, uh, I think my generation uh, learned, we grew up in, in college or if they went into the military at the age of 18. I watched later on a lot of guys come in about that time. Those were the two major places to go unless you just hung around home and got a job that you could uh, I wanted to see more of the world. Once I got to college, I learned there's a world out there. Mm-hmm. That I went off to uh, Fort Till, Oklahoma. I didn't choose the artillery. The Army cho- chose it for me. And um, But it was a new world. And it was very interesting, meeting people from all over, learning a trade. Uh, I'd always been a hunter with my dad and boys in the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I was good with a 12-gauge and a... And a 410 and what have you. But these these bullets were big. <laughs> you know, they, <clears throat> and, and they were heavy. But it was a new experience, and uh, uh, we were trained by professionals. I mean, these the, the people that trained me had been through World War II and Korea. They knew, they knew so much. They were so comfortable in what they were doing. Mm. And every time I looked at something, it was brand new. First time I'd seen it or heard it or touched it or whatever. And they just uh, were super trainers. Uh, as I said in my book, probably the best thing could have happened to me was go there for my, after basic was my first uh, tour in, in the Army. I've, I've worked with some companies and done uh, employee surveys and tried to figure out what employees think about the, their workplace. And I've been to a number of companies whose employees complain a good bit about the lack of training they get. And so they're like, you know, we, we come to work here and they just throw us into our jobs as welders or as, you know, candlestick makers or whatever it is. And there's no real formal training program. And it seems like, I don't know if this is true, but it seems like a lot of companies or corporations have reduced their, it seems like it used to be a lot of formal training. When you go to work for a company, you had to spend, you had to kind of go through a whole program before you could get out on the floor or on the phone or whatever your job was. Not so in the military. You're not going to go out there without being thoroughly trained. And the fact that you said that your trainers were so excellent, I guess when you go there and you're, you're just in such awe and wonderment about not knowing anything, you got to put a high degree of trust in those people that are training you that, well, they know what they're doing. So I'm in good hands. Looking back at it, it's really interesting. Here comes a a brand new 22, 23 year old male with a butter bar, gold bar on him, second Lieutenant who doesn't even know 
anything about the military. Not even sure when to salute and when not to salute. I mean, you know, I didn't go to a military academy or uh, had, had no previous military training. So everything was from scratch, so to speak. I was the boss, a supervisor of these guys. Uh, of, of, there were five lieutenants or four lieutenants in the unit. Is that right? Three, four? Yeah, four lieutenants and a captain in that first battery. And everybody had some sort of experience. And, of course, I was the junior one when I walked in, so I was the newest guy. I was the greenest guy. And they could pull pranks on me for a while there and get away with it until I learned how to do it. Then it was my turn to pull pranks on the next lieutenant that came in. But nonetheless, we got training all the time. You're talking about the training the military gives you. Every grade gets trained to go to the next grade, basically, mm. or the next two grades. The NCO gra grades, the NCO ranks are the same way, and the officer ranks are the same way. So uh, at every level, you're just not going to get trained as an artilleryman and, and forget it. You've got to learn at every level, every job requires some more training of some sort. Oh, that is really good. <laughs> um, Trish, I can actually see the look on your face. You know where exactly where I'm going on this one. We are constantly, I am co constantly coaching leaders about focusing on also what's next, or preparing for what's next. You know, you focus on now and your job that you have now, but you've got, always got to prepare for what's next and what's that next level. And I'm always encouraging leaders to start training for the next job before they get the next job. I mean, you're never completely ready for it until you've, you've done it. But that's an aspect, you just shared an aspect I hadn't really thought of. You're always training. Their whole intention is to move you to the next level. The, the idea is not to train you so that that's where you stay. But one leadership thing I just want to share, because he was talking about the story of just coming in brand new. And he taught this to me, too, was that when he went in there, he, he took assessment and he said, okay, I don't know anything, so let me go to the person who does. And was it the sergeant, sergeant major? That you sat down and he said, you listen to me, buddy, and I'll take you where you want to go. No, no Chief Farm Battery. Chief, all right. And yeah, so Jordan, uh huh? Tell that story because I think that's imperative to the fact that he listened mm. to, <laughs> um, you know, he stepped back. He didn't walk in knowing it all. He said, let me learn. Let me grow. Let me find the right people who know the right information to take me to make sure that I'm successful. Mm. Well, so, so Jordan is the beginning of my book. <clears throat> Excuse me. He probably made me the artillery officer that I finally became. It wasn't easy for him training me. But uh, I describe it in, in great detail in the book. But essentially, I arrived in the unit, parked my car, cocky little second lieutenant, all dressed up good. My shoes were shined. I had a haircut. I looked apart very well. I was so happy to get my first unit assignment. I thought I was a big deal. As I opened the door, this hand grabbed me on the left, right here between the elbow and the shoulder. He didn't salute me. He didn't say, sir, nothing. He said, follow me. <laughs> I couldn't follow him. He had me. He drugged me, basically. And on the way to the orderly room, he told me that I'm his, he's my sergeant. Uh, I'm his lieutenant. And if, he, if I will shut up, pay attention to what he tells me, I will make him a decent he will make me a decent artillery officer. Wow. Now, I'm thinking, he should have saluted me. What, well, how am I going to mm. address him for not doing that? Well, it wasn't too far to the orderly room there. 
about the time we got there, I was still pondering what to do. Then we walked, he opens the door, and the first sergeant yells, Come out, Lieutenant. Oh my gosh. So I went in there, and everybody yells around there. And the first sergeant said, Lieutenant's here. And the battery commander yells, Get in here, Lieutenant. <laughs> everybody yells around there, you know. No saluting, no surin', no nothing. But anyways, I, I describe that in uh, in the book. But later on, Thornton Jordan in the field would show me artillery techniques and tactics from how to put a unit to primitive defense, which saved our lives in Vietnam, by the way. And <clears throat> because I learned from him, and it prevented us from being overrun uh, my second tour a couple times. Wow. And... Um, he taught me how to shoot different types of artillery uh, by laying the batteries for direction, which is laying all the bat- all the tubes parallel and being sure they're accurately laid. You know, there are various ways to do that. I'll describe those in the book. Uh, but then, then he would watch me. Uh, the XO would often lay the battery, which is what we call lay the battery for direction. And then the safety officer had to go over and double-check it. So, and I was a junior officer, I had to be the safety officer. I'd go over and, and double check it. <clears throat> I could not use the same uh, method that the executive officer had used. And he would watch it. He would go screw with the aiming circle or give different data for the end of the OL or orienting line or something like that. In terms that y'all probably don't understand, but just know he was messing with me to see if I double checked. And at first, I wasn't as quite as doing what I should, but after a few times, uh, these I, are people you outrank. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, an uh, E. He, Sergeant Jordan was E seven. Yeah, yeah. It was World War Two, and Korean War veteran, about five nine. If he stood straight, but he didn't know how to do that. Uh, he still had some uh, fragments, metal fragments in his cheek, right up here, some in his back. Mm. Several Purple Hearts. Uh, I describe him quite accurately. At first, I was scared to death of him. And after a while, he really taught me. And then after a while, I realized I loved that man. You know, I, I, I'm loving this story because we talk about a principle mm-hmm. a lot we call leading up. And who's going to get in the leader's face? And who's going to tell the leader, look, you might, you might have a rank, but I have some knowledge. And you're going to need this knowledge. And so if you want to succeed in your higher level, <laughs> listen to what I'm talking to, listen to what I'm talking about. And sometimes as leaders, we can, we can be too arrogant to listen to the people under us. I always wanted, when I was in organizational leadership, I always wanted people, and this wasn't hard to get, <laughs> I always wanted people that were smarter than me, that knew, that could do their jobs better than I could do their jobs as their leader. Uh, that's what I wanted. And, and I wanted people who would look at me and say, that's not, you're not thinking about this right. I understand what you want to do, but this isn't right. You need to listen to me. Um, I really did appreciate it. You did describe that really well in the book. Tell us, um, let's get to the battle. By the way, you, you, you served a tour in Vietnam that was very different than your second tour. <laughs> you came back, you survived it, all is good. They tell you, hey, you know what? You've done your duty. Uh, you're going to Germany, you and your family. Uh, no more short tours for you. You've done everything we need you to do. 
And, and I'd like for you to just tell that story really quickly, because it, it could have been that you never were at Moduck. It could have been that you never went back to Vietnam. That was the plan. And that was even what you were told by the army. And it didn't work out that way. <clears throat> My first tour overseas unaccompanied, we call it in the military. That's without family. Was it 63, 1963, 64 to Korea? Mm. My second tour was in 66, 67 to Vietnam. And I got orders to Germany in the 70. I, was, I came out of Vietnam and into the artillery school for three years. And then I started hearing people going back to Vietnam for a second tour. So I, I got orders to Germany. So I called the personnel center called PERSCOM. No, mil percent in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. And it said, if you're going to send me back to Vietnam, just send me now. And then when I come back, I go to uh, Germany for the three years. Which I was told that's a great tour. And it was. I did go two tours over there, but this was before the first one. <clears throat> they told me there's no way I'm going back. I'd serve my two, my two short tours with us without family. I'm good to go. Go to, go to Germany. Enjoy your three years over there. Well, in a year and a half, I had orders to Vietnam. And uh, I don't know if I'll tell this story or not, but uh, I was I I called Perscom in Germany. Mill percent was over in Germany. It was called Personnel Center. Perscom. I called uh, up there when I found out I had orders, and I explained that I'd been told I would not be going back to Vietnam or any other short tour for a third time. I'd had three years over here, and the guy sort of flippantly said, "I don't care. You're going. You're going back to Vietnam." So <clears throat> I explained it again uh, a little more forcefully, <laughs> and uh, maybe embarrassingly so. And when I finished my tirade, he said, "You're still going. I don't care." So I went. Many years later, I came out on the advance uh, on the promotion board uh, for a command. Battalion command, and I ended up in uh, Fort Raleigh, Kansas, in the Big Red One, First Infantry Division. As I walked into at to command an eight-inch long tube nuclear unit, so I walked in to meet my boss, my new boss, the Board Commander. Seemed like a pleasant guy, sitting behind a behind a desk. And after about five minutes of talking, he said, <clears throat> "Does my voice sound familiar?" Oh, really? He said something, and I said, oh, my goodness. And he said, yeah, we had a conversation in Germany in 1971. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm done. My goose is cooked. But he said he liked <laughs> He liked it. We'd probably get along, and we did. He really. respected it, Just the straight talk and the stand-up, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> we did have a few... Uh, Disagreement. So during the during the time I was, I had the command for a little over two years. Yeah. Usually you keep them for about eighteen months, but I had them on for two years. And um, so you go your second tour and um, tell us what what was the assignment there at at Mo? What what was Modoc? I mean, you describe the difference between them. Um, you know, sort of like we have uh, towns and neighborhoods and. You know, they they had as ham was it a hamlet? What do you, was it, is that? What it was? Well, Moduck? you have provinces which are sort of like states, right? And then you have um, districts which are sort of like counties, okay? And then you have um, villages 
which is like uh, subdivisions. Okay. <clears throat> and you have hamlets, which are smaller than a subdivision. Okay. And uh, but I was assigned as a MACV, Military Advisory Command, Vietnam, Team 17, um, to Quang Nai Province, the district of Modoc. So, so, so. Okay. Had a four-man team. Actually, had an eight-man team. There were four um, Americans and four Vietnamese. And um, I, I, I hadn't. By the way, I hadn't thought about that a lot. You're working with the South Vietnamese. The the Americans that are over there are actually supporting them. Yes. And so your command <laughs> was joint between South Vietnamese and and Americans, who of course were fighting the North in, Vietnamese. In 1972, all the American combat troops or maybe there were one or two here or there, but they were gone. I didn't quite realize that when we landed in mm. June of 1972. By August, there were no American combat troops other than advisory teams and a few special forces teams and uh, things like that, support people. Uh, embassy guard, Marines were guarding the embassies, embassies and so forth. Mm. So there weren't any big, you know, I was with the first air cab the first time. It was at Fort Hood, Texas. They're gone. My battalion that I was in the first tour, they had been uh, deactivated and were no more. There were no combat units over there. Okay. I was strictly up uh, advising. We were advising, and, and of course, the Paris peace talks were going on at that time. Right. <clears throat> so we were told to keep a low key, just do what we're supposed to do, advise them, help them, assist them. Uh, go out on operations with them, but don't stir up any trouble. You know, I had uh, I had to call signs and so forth to get air, tactical air if I needed, and some navy uh, navy support from the South China Sea if needed. So you're not expecting major battle here. You're there in advisory capacity. It's a second tour. The war's winding down. There's not a lot of American combat over there. You're working with the South Vietnamese. Are you thinking at this point? This is not going to be. This isn't going to be a really big deal. I'll do this and go home. From June until September, we called it walks in the sun. We'd go out on operation, and it really wouldn't amount to much. Every once in a while, we shoot shoot up a little bit or ran into an ambush once or twice. But I mean, really nothing. I love how casually you say that. You know, we ran into an ambush every once in a while. A little shooting here and there, but no, no big deal. Well, I don't think the VC, the Viet Cong, wanted to ambush any more than we did. So, you know, mm, they yeah. initiated, but and we'd, we'd, we'd DD Mao. That means we'd get out of there. So you're, you're, you got walks in the sun, and then something changes pretty suddenly. Tell <laughs> us what happened at Moduck. Well, in the spring of 1972, uh, well, you know, in Tet-68, in my opinion, the war was over. The American forces and armed forces, uh, or even for the South Vietnamese forces, had basically completely defeated the North Vietnamese Army and the South Vietnamese Vietnamese Communists. Uh, they rebuilt their forces from 78 to of 68, 1968 to 1972. And they came across in a spring offensive in 1972. I don't have a, a detail in front of me, but approximately 14 divisions came down that didn't exist after 1968, but they put together at least 14 divisions and some down the Ho Chi, Chi Minh Trail, spinning off a couple of them here and there all the way down to the south part of South Vietnam, the Delta area. 
They put the third division west of Guangnai uh, Province. No, the second division, uh, NVA division, west of Guangnai uh, Province. The third NVA division, <coughs> west of Binden Province, which is where I was my initial tour. So I knew both of those areas. And again, NVA is North Vietnamese Army. North mm-hmm. Vietnamese Army, mm-hmm. and uh, we started getting, we started getting reports that they were moving eastward. But my district chief was dismissed us, and I've accepted that. As, um, I've checked it out. There's nothing to it. So I kept reporting it up the chain, but my district chief didn't report it up. We had parallel communication chains. He didn't report his up. So finally it came down that while we're getting this information from some major there and <clears throat> the American channel and the Vietnamese are saying, no, they're false. That's nothing. To the, the district chief was Vietnamese. This was this was Colonel Tan, was it? In the, okay. Yeah, he was um, Lieutenant Colonel in the Arvin Army. Okay. <clears throat> South Vietnamese. So you, you essentially, now did you report to him essentially? I mean, was no, he, I was, were you in I, his command or was I, he in yours? No, we, we were in the uh, military advisory command, which is all American, but we were assigned to advise and okay. assist okay. the, the Arvin um, South Vietnamese at the district and province level. Uh, my team, Team 17, was, uh, well, Team 17 was also at the province level. It was Quang Nai. Team 17 was for Quang Nai. Each district had an advisory team, and okay. the province headquarters had a, a province um, advisory team. Got it. So you're getting reports that <laughs> there's some activity going on that may put you in danger. Where are these reports coming from? The villagers or? I was getting, I had made a Pretty good uh, connection with the uh, with the Arvin S three, the District S three, District Operations Officer. Okay, he and I got along pretty well, and he was telling me this, and so now they're coming down, and my finally my boss says, "You you got to be careful what you're reporting because you're you the guy you're advising is not reporting." He says he's looked into it, and there's nothing to the reports. So I would talk to, uh, to Captain Gwen, who is. Uh, the S, the operations officer who works for Colonel Tom, <clears throat> and he says, I'm getting it from my people who, uh, who are out in the field, and they're pretty reliable. They've never let me down before, and they say that the North Vietnamese are encroaching in the western districts, and they're coming into Modoc pretty close, and that they're ready for an attack. So I kept sending it up. Well, lo and behold, on September 15th, a helicopter arrives, and an American general officer gets off the plane. Oh, nice. And we were, Typhoon was just moving in. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, so, oh, I didn't know he was coming, but I went up and reported to him. Well, he was not very friendly at all. And he finally just said, tell me why you're reporting this. I told him. And he didn't want to talk to the district chief. He didn't want to talk to the district operations officer. He just simply said, I'm told there's nothing to it. You are just getting too nervous out here. We're going to send you to Vung Tau, which is a, a place they used to send the Americans to rest and recuperate for a couple of days after some big battles, you know. <clears throat> that, that embarrassed me. It was, mm. you know, but I really... I didn't know what was true and what wasn't at that point. You know, you always, your generals 
you know, you, you believe what they say. You think they know everything. They should. They're supposed to. They're supposed to have better lines of communication and such. Anyway, uh, he's, I invited him to stay. I mean, who would want to stay with things that are starting to flood? <laughs> we didn't have any uh, any uh, smart accommodations he was used to, uh, pleasant accommodations like he was accustomed to. So he got on his helicopter about 5 o'clock and left. He turned down my kind invitation to stay and enjoy some Vietnamese food and so forth. 5 o'clock next morning, we got attacked. It was a 40 a 54-hour battle over three days. All right, let me. I'm going to pause here. I want to. I want to make sure I recap this. Tell me, I got this right. You're there. You're advising the South Vietnamese Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Tan is the district chief that you're advising. All is well. You're starting to get these reports, and and Captain Nguyen, who reported, who did report to Lieutenant Colonel Tan is saying, uh, we're getting some, I trust these people I'm getting these reports from. There's some activity. We're, we, we could be, they could be moving into Moduck and we could be in danger here. You're hearing it and going, well, then we should, you know, prepare for this. Your, your general is telling you, ah, you don't know what, you know, you're, you're being too nervous. You need to go on vacation. The district chief, you know, he knows better than you. This, this isn't going to happen. He gets on his helicopter. He leaves you're left sort of, you know, insulted and embarrassed. Five o'clock the next morning, all hell breaks loose. All hell breaks loose. For 54 hours. Beginning of a 54-hour battle. So I'm going to read over. this from your book. Typhoon was in its final stages. There was heavy rain. Cloud cover was up. The Navy was out to sea. The Air Force couldn't fly. We were overrun. And I had no support except for 120 people in my compound. So five o'clock in the morning. This starts happening. Continue the story. What tell tell us what happens from there? Oh, well, I don't want to get <clears throat> hour by hour. I have to read the book for that. <laughs> sure, but, sure. But yeah. there was a couple of wonderful things that happened. Um, we started getting reports of, of the different uh, regional force and popular force units being overrun, attacked, then overrun. I mean, we were losing a lot of people rapidly uh, throughout the district. And the district, uh, the uh, district chief, who was that lieutenant colonel, he's called the district chief, never showed up. He never came to the operations center. And I'm sitting there wondering, I have no authority, but my butt's getting ready to get killed if we don't do something here. So I'm sitting there talking to my interpreter, uh, Sergeant Long, and and uh, he doesn't want to go against the district chief. Captain Wynn doesn't want to go against the district chief. But we are being attacked. So <clears throat> at eight, around 8 o'clock, uh, the northwestern part of the perimeter erupted in gunfire. So we ran over there and looked at it, and here came, I forgot how many people I said in the book, around 50 of them, 50 or 60 of them. And the guys engaged them and, and took care of them, you know, and they turned and ran. Oh, it was, maybe it was a little earlier. But as it turned out, we later found out that a battalion was supposed to have initiated that attack. But they were late getting there. <clears throat> Some of the guys knew they were supposed to attack at that time, and they did. <laughs> That's why we, but we really knew then they were going to attack us. And Motor District Eagle had never been attacked all in, in the whole time the Americans have been there. So the first wave of this attack 
you're able to fight back, but it's due in part to their slip up. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, they messed you got, you got a little bit lucky that they didn't carry it out properly. Had that battalion been, been on time, we wouldn't be having this conversation mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. No question mm-hmm. about it. So back in the, uh, operations center was now we're getting all the radios are wide open. People are yelling for help. They're reporting information, uh, you can even hear some of them uh, being uh, killed while they're talking on the phone, mm. a radio. Anyway, this went on for several hours, and finally I just started assigning people jobs to do. You know, we need to know what's happening here. We need to know where in this village, who's going, where's this guy going? What are they seeing? What are their intentions? Uh, what's the strength level of the NVA? And so you know, I just started handing things out like I would do in an American operations center and um, <clears throat> I described in the book the Captain Wynn basically just sort of sat down and gave up once I started doing all that he sort of looked up at me and smiled and stood back up and started acting like the operations center chief again you know and um, at some point around noon I guess I don't really know what time it was now um, I realized that they were all looking to me for for instruction and what to do well, I knew we didn't have a whole lot of ammo. They didn't even know where their ammo storage was. Some of them. So we had to go around and scurry up our ammo. We didn't have a whole lot of ammunition. It was mostly for rifles. We had a lot of mortar. We had one mortar <laughs> in the compound and two mortarmen. And, um, and they had a lot of mortars. Well, who are they going to shoot at? We had to have spotters out there, you know, forward observers, so to speak. And the district chief still <clears throat> hasn't shown up. Hasn't shown up yet. At this point. I forgot what Tommy. There's a you know there's a saying, uh, what is it? Uh, Leadership abhors a vacuum. So whenever there's a a void in leadership, somebody, some leadership will step in, and it's going to be good leadership or it's going to be bad leadership. In this case, fortunately for everybody there, turns out it was really good leadership. But did you? How much thought were you giving at that point of well, should I step up and lead or should I not? Or was it instinctive? Was it you know, did they were they deferring their questions to you, and so you figured you must be the one? How did how did you arrive at? I got to do something. Might be self preservation. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, we're we're taught not to interfere with yeah. the other country and and their uh, organization. <clears throat> that they just hit a point where. If somebody doesn't do something, we're all going to just sit here like a like a bunch of cows and be shot. Yeah, I think you said in the book that you you knew there might be consequences for you later on for overstepping, maybe. Yeah. But here's your choice. Yeah. So, I haven't. I didn't use that term self-preservation in the book until just right now. But you asked the question in such a way that that's really what made me say, "Okay, I'm going to survive this thing if at all possible." And the only people I got uh, are on the South Vietnamese. So I guess I just, it was, there was a void, as you say, and I filled it, and they, they were willing to follow. What was the fear level at this point? And I know it might sound like a silly question. I'm sitting here thinking, well, duh, it was really high. But when the adrenaline's flowing and when you're in the situation where you've got to act, do you forget did you ever reach a point where you kind of forgot the fear at times or was it just all, did was it just really heavy the whole time the fear 
That's a that's a hard question to answer. In the beginning, I was I was so scared, I was shaking. Because mm. <laughs> um, nobody was doing anything to help us. And I wasn't sure what I could get away with or what I should do. Uh, after a while, once, once I sort of had, had the guys doing things, I don't know, didn't know whether it was going to be successful or not, but we started reallocating ammunition and putting different people around and putting wounded back up on the berm. So, well, if, you, if you can talk and walk, get your butt back on, the, on there. You're not going to lay around here and nurse a, a, a arm wound or a leg wound or something like that. You can certainly pull the trigger and shoot the gun. And once they found out... The, we had no medics, had no uh, medical people at all uh, inside the perimeter. So once they found out that they can bleed just as easily on the berm as they can sitting in the middle of the open area, uh, there was no dispensary. It wasn't uh, so. Things just sort of started falling in place, and the next thing I know, uh, I lose my sergeant. And uh, 122 millimeter came through the roof of what was supposed to have been a very strong, <laughs> but it came in through on fuse delay, and I took uh, we took wiped out half my team, and um, that was a shocker. Then I realized we were gonna lo- we were gonna lose this battle, so I just, I thought well at least I burned seven years worth of documents that, that should be available at higher headquarters, but we'll, we'll get rid of them here. Once we were overrun, the communists would see who had helped the Americans, and they would probably execute them. Uh, <clears throat> so I started burning those, and different incidences happened during that time. With the sniper shooting at us, and every time I'd burn something, a bullet would whiz by. You know, had a machine gun over there shooting at us from time to time, and my guys would run over and take care of them and him, and it was just one of them. We later learned it was they were tying their people to a stake and making them fire into our compound, into our our headquarters, perimeter, until we killed them. Then they'd drag them off, replace them, and put another one there. Right, quite brutal. And we later learned at the end, after they ran out of their people, they were taking kids from the village, 14, 15-year-old kids. And they were setting up, I was trying to picture this as I was reading it, they were setting up sort of behind the villagers or, or right in the village knowing that you weren't going to fire at them and kill a whole bunch of innocent civilians. And so they were basically using them as human shields, it sounded like. Yeah, when they, when they did a mass attack, I mean, we had, you know, it wasn't all constant attacks. It was, right, it, it was, was waves. Breaks, waves, and uh, <clears throat> they'd go back and rearm, try something else, you know. There were an hour, two hours sometimes in between attacks and so forth. Were you thinking it was over? Oh, Every time, and then it comes back? Yeah, I knew I couldn't survive that. You were talking about, what did you do? I, I really told myself, I'm going to take as many of them with me as I can before they, before they get me. Mm. And that was my motiv- one of my motivations. My biggest motivation was I wanted to survive and go home to my wife and family. Yeah. I had a sweet little girl. There <laughs> she is right there, back there waiting on me. Wow. And a son. And, um, but I didn't think I'd ever see him. I was 34 years old at that time. I thought, well, this is, this is my fate. This is it. This is it. But uh, I thought of all the ways I could go, but I wanted, to go, I wanted to go out doing my duty. 
and acting like an American that's right. a that, warrior. That's that's what that that's what a patriot soldier is all about. You well, just that, it, it, epitomize what, that. That's what the training's about that we get. Well, that's uh, true. We, we don't. We're not taught to give up after a while. Yeah. You know, to me, uh, I didn't want to be a POW. Mm, yeah. So what, you, boy, there's so many elements of the, of the story of things that you were doing. You're getting shot at. You're going up to a tower. Uh, you're shooting back. You're, you're, um, I'd like, I'd love to, you to get to the part of the story where you're starting to radio for help because you, you got to, you got a ship out there that was giving you support from the sea and you got a couple of airmen that came in and saved the day in some areas, but it was because of your outreach to them and your communication, giving them coordinates. So you're doing more than just telling people, you know, go find ammunition. You're, you're directly involved in commanding not only your people, but you're now, you're now giving directions to other units that are bringing in support to you. Talk about your activities during that time. I think one of the most important things that happened, now there was a refugee camp where people had come in over the last couple of years. Since the spring offensive in, 19, in March, the smart, March of 72, and this occurred in September of 72, the people in the outlying areas had come into the most, uh, Moda District headquarters to a, an area that became a refugee center, which was really shabby, stinky, I mean, terrible living. It had grown from, I don't know, a couple thousand people to somewhere around 20,000, plus or minus. The district above us, Tunia, radioed that they had moved some artillery to our border, just inside or just outside of the border, don't know which. And we were at their maximum range, but they were available. So... Once, once my people found out, and we knew we had learned by this time that there was a battalion or more in the refugee center. Now, refugees are refugees, you know. They're not human people. They're people. They mm. aren't. They aren't the people who live there in the, in the village or the hamlet around the district. They're somewhere else from the district, or maybe even another district. We don't know. Oh, I didn't know at the time. Um. <clears throat> My people inside said, we have artillery. Let's shoot the battalion inside. Well, the, the people in there were about as close together. That 20,000 plus or minus was about as close together as the three of us are. There's no way you would, a round might get three or four of the NVA, might get eight or nine civilians, men, the women, ref, the refugees. Children, the refugees. Yeah. I pondered that, and I thought, I can't do that. My, the way I was raised, the way we think as Americans, that's it's infallible. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So I said I wasn't going to do it, and I was not going to allow anybody to give the order to shoot into the refugee camp. So now I had the enemy fighting me from outside, and the, the guys on the inside were very angry with me. So I had no friends. Well, my interpreter probably my only friend. He didn't have a choice. Leadership is lonely, right? <laughs> you're making a you're probably making a good an, example. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're making an ethical decision. They're trying to make a strategic decision that they think is the only path to to winning yeah. or surviving. But you're making a values based decision, 
and and having to stand by that and it was it was hard it was difficult what i didn't know was uh earlier in the earlier years the civilians uh forgot what you call it now um i never thought i'd ever forget it oh the court the court civil operations and rural development they mm. were civilians that americans sent over and worked with uh with the local people throughout Vietnam to help them with their finances, with their agriculture, with digging wells, with, uh, you know, trying to move them up from truly being third-world nation to at least being second-world nation, if that's such a thing. Um, They had put in $25 Motorola radios. Captain Wynn had one. And so did all these civilians in the district towns and the hamlet towns. Once the word got out that the Tultai, the the major, uh, me, I was not going to allow anybody to shoot in a refugee camp or any of the villages. We started, they started reporting where the mortars were, the artillery was, the command headquarters, battalion command headquarters. I was getting all these coordinates. I could well, but I didn't have any capability to shoot them because they were not within the range of that Tunia, two howitzers up there, just outside the range because they were west and Tunia was north and they could just barely get to, get to us. And, uh, and there was such range dispersion that some, one round would go over our uh, compound, one would fall short, one would go this way. You know, it was range dispersion and... and um, uh, was bad at, at maximum range. At any rate, <clears throat> they started sending all that. Then all of a sudden these guys, somebody called. It was the Air Force. It, I think by now we're in around 10 o'clock at night, something like that. I, I've got the exact times in my book. And, you know, they said, they're Covey. This is Covey so-and-so. What the hell was a Covey? Well, he's a forward air controller. And he was armed with... Uh, 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 missiles and machine guns and I forgot what he's all was now. Um, can't think of what they are. Uh, no time for my memory to go out, but nonetheless, it's in the book. Um, two of them, uh, Captain Joe Personnet and Captain Rich Polling, and uh, I gave them the coordinates, and they uh, the combination of yeah, I see the mortars fired from where you said, and then they'd go in and try to strike them and take them out. So, yeah, they, they saved my life. And then they ran out around 2 o'clock in the morning. They ran out of ammunition and fuel. They said, we got to leave. You know, I said, well, I'm done for now. Next thing I know, the USS Hansen shows up. or have been out there listening or something, and I think maybe the Air Force guys were actually fired, uh, adjusted some of their uh, 8-inch 32 guns as well. When they left, I, I was an artillery man. I've been trained to do that. I just took up the fire. I said, hey, here's, some, here's a fire mission. And I gave them the coordinates, and I started adjusting them for the next couple hours, and the Air Force came back in. So then they took the roll back over, adjusting their, their fires, and and then we got TAC Air uh, A7s off of the Koryas and F4s out of Thailand. and It was a real war going on there then. All the support started coming just in the nick of time. Just in the nick of time. Uh, when when one would leave, somebody else would show up. You know, it was just amazing the, the, the timelines of how things uh, worked. 
There's a couple of um, a couple of other areas in the book that really fascinated me. One of the things you said you, at one point when you didn't know how much headquarters was doing to prepare to help you, you just didn't know what support you were going to get. Nor are they out there talking about it? Or are they thinking about coming in and helping us? Like what's going on? You said this in the book. You said sometimes the lack of knowing one way or the other is depressing. We say this all the time in organizational leadership. It's the unknown that is the scariest to people. So, uh, for example, if if you know that uh, there's a big layoff coming in your company and you're on the list and you're getting laid off and they've they've offered you a you know a meager severance package, but you're getting laid off due to downsizing. That's a terrible thing for someone to go through. But the, the, some of the studies and certainly some of the qualitative things that I've seen in my coaching world is that that's actually better for a lot of people than not knowing, am I going to get cut? Yeah. Knowing there's a layoff coming, but I don't know if my job's getting cut or not. It's the uncertainty. The anticipation. The, the anticipation of not knowing. You, you'd rather just know. Yeah. You know you, it, it sounded like in that moment, you'd rather at least know, nope, they haven't heard us. They're not coming. I sort of had that opinion. Yeah. But yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, but you didn't know. That's the that's the scary part. The other thing you said, and this is where we can get, and, and we can talk a little bit about your, your faith, uh, Colonel Collier. This was really, um, you said at one point, I could not have felt any more helpless than I did at that moment. And then you, you asked this question, what does one do when one sees no hope whatsoever? And you he, had pray, a, he prays. They pray. That's what you do. You know what it made me think of? There's a scripture in first Thessalonians that is talking about death, but it says we don't sorrow like other people sorrow who have no hope. And, you know, for, for the tens of thousands of people, you know, that experience something similar. I mean, they're over there, they're fighting. It's war. It's humans killing humans. And, and those that don't have a foundation of faith to stand on and have, have, have that to at least be your support and your backing. I, I, it's hard to imagine how to go through it with that, but you did have it. I don't know how, how much I had, um, I talked to people after it in my combat vet groups and different places. I've often said, I don't know how people survive even in civilian life. If they don't have faith, mm. how do you get through this world? How do you get through a car wreck or someone murders uh, uh, or even robs one of your family members? You know, downtown Chicago, not Chicago, that happens all the time there. Uh, somewhere, you know, downtown somewhere, yeah, uh, USA. Um, you got to have you got to have faith that you get through it. That there had to be a reason uh, that everything's going to be all right. Just you know. Hang in there. Suicide is never an answer. Yeah, Tricia, that is um, that has to be one of the major things that have impacted your life. You know, being being the daughter of someone who ha- who that's how that's how you live it. When you have no hope, you pray. You you settle yourself in your faith. You trust the will of God. Um, these values, these ethical decisions of not, not shooting into the refugee camp, even though it might mean saving yourselves, um, you know, having faith, how have these experienced as experiences and values that your father has lived shaped 
you and, and your leadership today? I, th- I think I can sum it up in a couple things. My, my daughter, Samantha, actually has said, Mom, our family is different. We talk about things. We talk it through. We share information with one another as, as adults more. We share information more as adults to say, hey, I had this thing happen at work. Can you talk it through with me, Dad? Am I looking at the right angles? Or Mom at the time, because I, I watched several things. I watched a partnership between um, my dad and my mom and, and how family was important. My parents were involved in activities with my brother and I from, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, swimming, soccer, you name it, they were there. He made choices in his job, actually. He turned down a couple of assignments so that he could spend time with family because he wanted, especially after coming back from Vietnam, he wanted to be there for the family and make that connection with the family because there was a lot of um, mental abuse, or is that the right word, that they would use when he was in the war. They would use his family as a way, you're never going to see them again, things like that. So it almost motivated him in some aspects. Um, to want to come back and spend time. And so we communicate as a family. We talk through problems as a family. Um, we share information. Um, you have to work for it. You can't quit. Um, my, you, my dad in this war has no quit. My mom had even more no quit in her from that <laughs> aspect. But there's, there's the other side of that. You know, he was fighting it hand to hand. And then my mom was home hearing all of this going on, seeing people not coming back having to figure out my husband may not come home. So I saw both sides from that. She's at war too at that point. She is, absolutely. That's what the thing people forget. And I always appreciate it when, you know, people ask me, do you have a military background? I say, no, well, I I was, I have never been in the military. Right. Um, But my father was, and my father was in the Korean War and the Vietnam War and a major in 20 years and all of that. And people always remind me, Oh, you were in the military. Absolutely. You know, you, you sacrificed too. You know, your family sacrificed with all the, all the time that you have without your dad being there and knowing that, you know, and so, yeah, it's, it's true. He's fighting it on one, on one end, but on the other end, that feeling and that fear and that, you know, and handling things, you know, without dad being there. Exactly. Yeah. That's. I did want to, you had asked a question early on in the conversation about him, you know, when he stepped in, when he made the decision that I don't know that I'm going to get any support or help or yep. I don't know the right thing to do. From that point on, to the stories that I hear and have heard over the years, he stepped in and made that decision to lead, and it was innate in him. But then even when he got out of the service, um, even in volunteering in the service, he, he stepped up as, you know, swim coach chair for volunteers. There was so much that he did in a leadership role that he wouldn't consider leadership, but it was a leadership. And I saw that. And my brother saw that from, from those angles of, you know, when there's not somebody else to step in, it's your job to step in. It's your job to bloom where you're planted. They would say wherever we moved. And so, um, there were a lot of aspects of that, that we would do and get involved in a church and be committed to your service in the church. Well, you say in the book, one of the things that someone, I forget who it was, taught you when in charge, be in charge. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Who was that? that Somebody, I think you said somebody told you that and that. That's right. When in charge, be in charge. Like you can't just sit there and go, uh, what do I do? Um, man, so many things here. I, w- I want to get to, um, so coming, coming back to, to the battle, we, we don't have time to get into the rest of the battle, but essentially with the hundred or so people that you had at your disposal, some of them I'm guessing not very well trained. No. Yeah. They- and you're fighting 2000 or more over this 54 hour period, 2000 or more North Vietnamese 
people that are there to kill you and run you over, run you out. That that's that's the outnumbered twenty to one. And then when it's over and you're on a you're on a mission, I think you were taking some of the bodies. And you're, you're, I forget the name, the vehicle that you were in, but you're in a vehicle and some of the villagers stop you and they warn you of an ambush coming. Yeah, we were in APCs. Okay. And they warn you of this ambush. And so now, boy, the plans change. Like, do we go? If we do go, how do we handle this? And I'm gonna, again, I'm a quote from the book here. You said, when you rolled through the ambush, you said, it was scary as hell. And somewhat fun at the same time. <laughs> I'm, I read that and thought, fun? And it, it didn't sound tongue-in-cheek. You were saying it was somewhat fun at the same time. Describe that feeling of going through an amp. You're in war. I mean, most people can't even fathom being in this situation. And you're having fun? How did, how did, you, how did those two things mix? After the battle, we started going out on real operations, chasing these guys all through the district and province. The Vietnamese, the first couple we went on, they were, I could hardly walk. They didn't think I could be killed. Mm. And, I, of course, the tallest one hit me right here. I was 6'1 at the time. And get away from me, you know. I was scratching down so that the enemy wouldn't see me. But... That's that feeling uh, at a certain point back in the battle. I'm beginning to think somehow I've got something around me that I'm watching people die next to me and I'm not. Mm. Maybe I can't be. Mm. Maybe I should enjoy this a little bit. I don't know the real answer to that. Wow. But, uh, but I'm still a warrior. I was trained to be a warrior. Now's the time to enjoy it. You know, if, if I, there's I, such a thing, that sounds stupid, but, but, all of the training and putting together it all in one piece, and I was at the tail end of this thing. I had to get across that river with three APCs, wounded in one, dead in the other two. Not, no, excuse me, non-wounded in one and the wounded in the other two. Mm. There were three of them. Mm. The interesting thing, a part of that was. The NVA were to the west. We had just come from the east and south. We knew we knew where everybody was except going straight ahead. And now they said there was an ambush. They were preparing an ambush for us. It didn't take very long for me to say, there's only one choice here. There's no talking about this. But my interpreter stayed back. So I had to try to get my point across to a sergeant who knew a little bit, and a couple of the Vietnamese, his soldiers, knew a little bit. We sat there and jawbone for about 10 minutes. But basically, I said, we're going to go across three. I'm going to be in the middle one. Sergeant is going to be in the sergeant was the highest ranking guy of, of the three. He was in t- charge of the three APCs. That you're going across. If they hit your track and you can't move, I'm going to bump you. And it's about 30 or 40 feet down to the river from this little small bridge. And I said, and then if I get stranded out there, I told the guy behind, you bump me. Somebody's going to get across this river, or nobody's going to get across you, this river, you, or we're all going to get across. When it. you say you bump me, you mean you knock bump me, me off, you get me off, knock me off the bridge, knock me off the bridge. Yeah. You sacrifice us. Yeah, you got to get across. Somebody's going to get across. Wow, we're going to beat them guys if it's only one of us get on the other side. You know, we we in 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 leadership in in the, in the safe organizational world that we live in all the time. We we have um, 
you know, a leader will say something and not necessarily because of language, although sometimes, but just because of style and communication style, Trisha may say something in a team and I'm sitting there and I interpret it one way because I don't speak her leadership language. Right. Somebody else interprets it some other way. We make a mistake. This is war. You can't, you can't make that mistake. Like there's so much at stake and you're sitting here, new plan, new people, you're limited Vietnamese and they're limited English and you've got to communicate this and you can't afford <laughs> to get it wrong. There was a lot of arm and hand signals like, you know, uh, kaput, you know, for the track and, and water and, you know, just all. I knew wow. and after about 10 minutes of this, and they were all looking at me like this, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm not getting through. Finally, I said, let's go. And they all started hugging each other. And I knew they understood. Wow. They yeah. understood. They knew what they were rolling into. Yep. And, and nobody refused to go. Nobody turned around. Nobody wanted to argue. Said, Let's go. And the sergeant hopped up and yelled something in Vietnamese, and the engine started, and we hauled across that bridge. Man, well. And we made it. <laughs> and, and I know that there are so many other stories. You've been shot down. Your helicopter was shot down at least several times, didn't you? No, just once. Just the one. Well, that, that one's told in the book. And I it just... It, it is just unfathomable to think about being in that situation for someone who's never been in it. Uh, I really want to encourage people to read the book. I wanted you on this show to tell this story because, uh, and, and in the very limited way that we can do it in an hour or so, I really want people to read the book. You, you learn so much about humanity, leadership, values, faith, Fear, courage, honesty, trust, loyalty, betrayal. Here's something that, that is interesting, and I will go ahead and divulge this to everybody. Lieutenant Colonel Tan, the district chief who just wouldn't show up and dismissed all the reports and, and all that, you found out later, I think after your debriefs even. So yeah. first of all, your debriefs, you're <clears> careful <throat> not to throw him under the bus. You stated the facts. He wasn't there. He, you know, he might've been derelict in his duty, but you didn't berate him and bash him and, and all of this. Later, you find out that it turns out he was actually subversive. He was working with the North Vietnamese. He was giving up Moduck on purpose. Nope. That blew my mind when I read that. You said, though, when you met him, you didn't use these words, but when you met him for the first time, you didn't get a vibe. You didn't get a good vibe from him. There was something you had that there was something about him at the moment. You just, something wasn't quite right. Did that inform and affect your decision-making through, through that period and looking back on it? No, I was unhappy because I couldn't develop a relationship with him. Mm. The battalion commander that came in after the battle, we clicked almost from the beginning. It was, we were almost you know, hooked, hooked together. Yeah. I mean, you, as you read a little bit more, he, I could do no, he would listen to what I say and I would listen to what he said and we were very successful and we had a lot of fighting still to do, but it wasn't critical like the fifth four hour battle was. Mm. And even, even we, uh, on the four party joint military commission, you know, 
uh, I, that was really neat because we were supposed to take any. Uh, that's that's another story. But I supervised the exchange of the only South Koreans, South Koreans, not South Vietnamese, South Korean soldiers that were POWs. Supervised them coming back. Wow. When in the in the sixty during the sixty days following of the end of the war. We weren't supposed to take any weapons, <clears throat> and I'd been at Chula, so I didn't know what what had happened to Modoc. Uh, they'd put me up on a four-party joint military commission on January uh, 29th. This was probably around uh, March 6th or 7th when we did that. But, uh, but they flew me in, gave me a jeep and province headquarters, and I went down through Modoc, and I, and I saw him. He and his battalion, a part of his battalion, was going to escort me down to the site where we were, going to, we were going to exchange VC and NVA for the South Koreans. <clears throat> no weapons were allowed. But I had lined my Jeep with stuff. I ain't going to know with no weapons. You're crazy. <laughs> yeah. And then I met, I met him, and he looked at me and said, and, he, and I said, where are your weapons? He said, they won't allow it. And, then he, and he had three or four deuce and a half lined up with the POWs on and he went into this one. We could have we could have held him off for three hours with all the ammo. <laughs> with all had. the weapons you had that weren't allowed. <laughs> yeah, so he looked at me and I looked at him. We, in those days, you didn't do this kind of stuff, you know. But that's what we did with our eyes. It was just like we're okay. I got you. We're I okay. Read you. Yeah, you we're know? good. It was it was wonderful. That's the kind of relationship I had with him. I wanted that with the guy I was sent there to be the advisor yeah. to. Yeah. And, but he was a he was a Viet Minh against the French, as it turned out. And so, he had crossed the line, but acted like a South Vietnamese lieutenant colonel. But yeah, so all of those things, when you talk about the typhoon and the heavy rain and the cloud cover and the Navy's out to sea and the Air Force couldn't fly and you're overrun 20 to 1, in that paragraph, you could have added, and we had a district chief who was actually <laughs> working for the other side on the inside. I mean, what all the, I mean, everything that could possibly be stacked against you are stacked against you at that moment. And that, yet, and yet here you are. That's one reason it took so long to write it. Nobody would ever believe this. It, and uh, the battle was in a lot of newspapers in the United States. If you go back and look September, mm. 1973, <clears throat> my in-laws had every time they could find one and, and, uh, the Washington Times or the Oklahoma City Daily or St. Louis, whatever, they would get it. So, And I put one of them in there said, uh, said this major guy looked look more like a school teacher than a fierce warrior or something like that. And I thought, okay, that, yeah, I agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I thought. But, I thought watch, but watch me. <laughs> But I thought, so nobody's going to believe this. Then in 2012, after I, uh, my story came out to my combat vet group, and I had been in my battalion from Vietnam, met in 2010 for the first time, and then my church wanted to start a combat vet support group. In 2011 or 2012, so and, the, and everybody was telling their story. You know, guys were coming in that wanted to tell their story. A lot of, you'd be surprised how many guys just want to get it off their chest, but they're only going to tell it to another combat vet. They're not going to tell it to anybody else. Mm. Combat veteran talking to combat veteran. Don't make, don't make a difference which war. The commonality is so strong there that I can talk to Afghanistan guys 
and they accept me. I can talk to the World War II and Korea guys, and they accept me, uh, and so forth. And I them, <clears throat> but um, um, lost my turn of thought. <laughs> You Where'd he go? <laughs> just talking about in, in the newspaper. Uh, um, the news articles about the, the war and how people wouldn't believe you. Oh, yeah. So um, they finally made me tell my story. Well, I didn't want to tell it, but I had about three days after the Battle of Moda, I, had, I was flown to uh, Saigon to, t- to give a briefing to the commander of Vietnam, a four-star general, Fred Wyman at the time, uh, four stars from the Air Force, four stars from the Navy, and all that. So they had taped it, and they gave me a copy of the tape. I never heard it. I didn't play it. When I got home, I just put all my stuff away and moved on with my life. So I said, well, I got a tape. I'll play it. When I finished playing it, they were dumbfounded at, it, at all the stuff that I talked about with those generals on a couple of days after the big battle. So... Uh, <clears throat> one of them, one of the co- one of the guys I co-founded a, a combat support group with, uh, started hunting around, and he found Joe Personnel, the Air Force guy. He said, I had two Air Force guys shot down over my position, and two Army helicopter pilots shot down over my position. At one time, there was an O-10 Bronco sitting there in sight of me when I was up in the tower, and two helicopters laying on the ground. I had four aviators, two from the Air Force and two from the Army, waiting to be saved, being shot at by the Vietnamese. <laughs> Coming to save you. No, no, they were they were saving me. At this time, right. I was just sitting there in dumbfounded watching all this aerial stuff take place, and, and we were losing that battle pretty strong. I mean, you know, my God, I had 99 of my 120 guys killed or wounded. There was only 21 of us standing when the thing was over, if you want to call it that. We went through, I went through a, a list of decorations, well, well-deserved decorations. There's, um, there's another one that I think anybody listening to this story would say you're worthy of. Um, it requires, I think, some maybe some greater rigor of documentation and eyewitnesses or something. I, I want you to tell this. Um, but um, you've got people now saying the evidence is mounting and coming together again for 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 that for that to be looked at. Is that Trisha? This was you who told me this, so I may I may, I may have it wrong. I I don't know what's going on. Um, um, it was the guys once they heard that tape that put me in for the Medal of Honor, but the, the army said. There were no Americans left alive. I was the only American left alive. And so they had to be, uh, the, they said the proof wasn't there or something. I don't really know. I didn't pay attention. I don't really care. Mm. I got out. <laughs> this is something his guys wanted him to do. And then and then when Dad finally decided to um, really get into writing the book, he started to get information and letters from with the support of mainly Steve Vitale and a few others really pushing hard to find this information and um, help him get there. But now he has the, the records from some of these people, the, their accounts, their uh, American first accounts of being part of that war, even found out that the USS Hansen won an award for that battle that he didn't even know about. So there is mounting information for that in that process. And for him, 
it's not, I mean, it's never been about the battle. It's just he survived and, and he was, because of his survival, was going to go on and lead a life of service. And he did that for, you know, the family, for the state, for his church, for all of that. So I do think they're starting to mount evidence. I just don't know that he'll ever put in for it, you know? Yeah. Well, I get that. And, um, you know, that's, that's, I have found to be pretty typical of war heroes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, that that's, I mean, you, you've said it and you've, you've, the authenticity comes through loud and clear. You did your job. You know, you, this was your job. You were there to serve. You served the best you could. You're grateful you survived it. You thank God for it. And, uh, you come back and you serve and you, you make something, you know, you make it count. Mm -hmm. That's great. A Congressional Medal of Honor, one, recognizes that well-deserved for you. But it, to me, those kinds of honors are for other people, too. Because it sends a signal of what um, deep service really looks like and what it should look like. And it lets people know how big a deal, how significant that is. And when we're talking about you know, serving your country and serving humanity really. Um, so anyway, I, I would love to know that that's still on the table mm-hmm. and, and, um, and a possibility. Um, just, just a couple of other things. Last thing about Modoc is I think you said Colonel Bowman found a replacement for you, said you're, you're done there. Oh, you yeah. wanted to go back. <laughs> You said no. That those are that's that's my that's my station. That's my that's my assignment. Those are my people. Why? I mean, I would think, man, I I could see you going. Oh, thank goodness! I'm you know, yeah, I don't want to go back there. But you wanted to go back there. Why? You just said it. Those were my people. There's a there's a bond. Combat veterans. I talked about before. They they may have been South Vietnamese. But they're still combat veterans. We still fought together. Mm-hmm. We fought for the same thing. We're human, rather, regardless of what we look like. We have the same feelings. Uh, it's hard to say, but that's, that was my organization. I fought hard just there, and somebody wasn't going to come in and screw it up. <laughs> it was mine. Wow. Um, Talk about ownership, huh, Patrick? uh, It is. It's it's, um, pure ownership. You know, during some of my leadership studies, Colonel, we studied servant leadership theory and we studied steward leadership theory and, you know, agency theory and all these. And I won't go deep into it, but... You are making, you are reminding me of those studies because people talk about servant leaders all the time. Uh. If you, if you research servant leadership and where it came from, Robert Greenleaf and all this, there's actually, if you look at the body of study, there is a layer on top of servant leadership called steward leadership, inside of which servant leadership lives. And the difference is that when you're in pure servant leadership, it's all about just serving others. When you're a steward leader, you're also protecting something you are overseeing a bigger thing, something that's bigger than you and ensuring a greater entity's success while serving people. I listen to you and that's what I see. I, I, I see steward leadership founded in, in a deep 
sense of service. And it's just, it's just incredible. So you leave the military, you go on to serve. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, and, and Trisha, Trisha may, may you, you, you may jump in on this too a little bit. What's, what's been, what's been basically the, the, the goal, the mission, the work since leaving the military? Well, within the criminal justice system <clears throat> with the South Carolina State, okay. at uh, the governor's office level, and then when they created the South Carolina Department of Public Safety, I went with them, then transferred over to the State Transport Police. Okay. So, so in, in the fashion I expected, you answered that question with a little bit of uh, some resume uh, check boxes. And I remember, you know, Trisha, he told me at lunch, he doesn't toot his own horn. So I'm going to let you toot his horn for a second because there's been some deeper thing. There's been some real contributions that he's made since leaving the military. You've told me about some of those. Share them with the listeners. Absolutely. Well, his last tour um, of duty for the regular military was as the IG for the National Guard for South Carolina. So he developed a love of the state. And then when he retired, he got a job with um, the state in criminal justice. And uh, then it turned into Department of Public Safety, where they started with uh, $5 million in grants. And that turned into $24 million in grants by the time he left there. And he developed teams. And he worked. his work ethic was much like it was in the military. And um, that was surprising in some arenas, uh, how hard you work. And he developed people. I, we have letters and cards from women and men who have said, I wouldn't be where I am today without you, sir, and I appreciate your service, before this book ever came out. And um, just wanted to thank him for him developing them, pushing them, doing that. And so after he did um, the Department of Public Safety, he his last tour was as state transport police. And, and in each of the jobs, I think even in... Um, to state transport police, he he had the ability. When you go back to that fun question, it's it's more challenge. It's not fun as in you know this was a good time because war's not a good time. It was more of he thrives on the challenge and we can make things happen. And so he got to go out and do some things probably he shouldn't have done with some of the state mm-hmm. positions and be a part of some things to see. All right, how do we need to make this better for the state? How can we change the way we're doing things at state transport police yeah. or in public safety, starting the DARE program, starting with some of the grants, school resource, school resource officers as well, community policing as well, were all things <laughs> while he was at uh, Department of Public Safety that he, he led and developed relationships with people, which is a key to what you do to be a leader. He's excellent at that, learning and knowing. And he has that, that great sense of let's take the detail, but we still got to honor and love the people. So... That's my version, Dad, of your, I worked here, here, and here. Well, if I could find someone that was proud of you, you know, (laughs) share a little bit of, uh, you know, from a bias standpoint. No, I I appreciate it. It's an important part of the story because it's not just, you know, it's not just, hey, I was in this battle. There's just so much more to it. I mean, I literally, I read the book and I, I laughed, I cried, I went back and reread passages. I kept going, this needs to be a movie, this needs to be a movie. Um, you just tell it and wrote it so incredibly well. Uh, why, why did it take so long? You said you didn't want to tell the story. Why not? You know, when the World War II veterans came home and the Korean War veterans came home, especially World War II, they were given parades. 
a lot of a lot of uh, positive things occurred for them. Vietnam was different. We were uh, we we returned and given to protests. Less, yeah, we. I don't know the right word to say it, but we were we were not held in high regard. Mm. Yet I think we probably uh, acted in Mila, things like that. They were isolated essences, terrible as they were. They were isolated essences. If you look at Vietnam today, they love Americans. I've tell you some stories about that. That if we have war with China, they're on our side, and they're a communist. I've gotten out of a pretty good word, but anyway. And then in the '60s and '70s, uh, you know, there were pockets of social unrest all through uh, America. Um, I got, I got what I wanted out of that. I got to come home, and I got to take care of my family, and raise my kids, and do yeah. what I, do what I think I should have been doing all those years. Um, I just put all my military awards and everything in a box and let them stay. Yeah. Then a guy in our, my battalion on the first tour who was 19 years old was a gun bunny, a cannoneer, we call them gun bunnies, on the howitzer, 105 millimeter howitzer, started in 2009. Where's everybody? I miss him. I wonder wonder what happened to him. So he started rounding up and found his battery commander, found us a couple of guys in his gun section, and they met in 2009 and decided to hold a reunion in 2010. They did it in Chattanooga. <clears throat> I was reading a, a American Legion or VFW magazine. I don't usually look back at reunions, but for some reason that night I look back at the reunions and read it. Union Army, this Army, that, uh, 7th, 13th Artillery. Wait a minute, that's my battalion. Call Robert Adams. So the next day I call Robert Adams. Uh, he says, got the other end of that phone. He said, uh, hello, and I said, is this Robert Adams? He said, yes. I said, well, my name's Bill Kelly. I know who you are. Well, I, <laughs> I told him when I was growing up, and somebody called like that and say they knew my daddy. My daddy hung the phone up because he said it's a bill collector. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I said I came real close to hanging up on you. But he he had gone on to college. He went into construction, so I didn't want to do that. Went to college, got a degree, worked for the government for a couple of years, didn't want to do that. Ended up as a financial advisor. Became very successful with that up in Kentucky. So he spent a lot of time and energy money, researching records and trying to pull the guys together. And there were 20 or 21 of us that showed up with wives and maybe 40 or 50, but of the guys that served mm. together. What a feeling that was. Mm. Just to see those guys again 40, I think it was 47 years later. And then the next year, my church wanted to start a combat vet support group because we had a lot of veterans in our fairly large church. So... I remembered how I felt that year in 2010, seeing the guy. I said, yeah, I'll go along with that. So I ended up with uh, Steve and I and Bobby, the three of us, co-founding Project Josiah, restorationministry.org. Mm. And we've helped a lot of guys uh, as a result. 
So then I get pressure as we go. I started bragging about how many guys we help. These guys really, I'm learning a lot from them. They're helping me because I'm hearing them talk. And then I started talking, you know, heard a little later. I put my story out there. and My wife and my daughter, granddaughter, everybody started saying, where's your story? Write the book. You tell some interesting stories, but put it in writing. I had to forget that noise. But anyway, finally, uh, after all, they harassed the fool out of me for so long. I finally gave up. And, and what was the what was the key? Uh, I forgot what the key. I thought I made a note at some point. Well, yeah. Well, we you know when because we were talking about this earlier oh. about why why did you not want to tell the story and then now why did you decide now is the time to tell the story? Well, because of their harassment and because I saw how wonderful it was, and then I'm listening to the media today, and I'm listening to kids at my grandchildren and great-grandchildren's age. They don't even know where Vietnam is. They don't know what the word patriot means. They don't really understand what freedom is all about, and mm. enjoy. They don't understand World War Two, Korea, Somalia, uh you know, all these different places, they don't even know what they mean. Yeah. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, they just live in, in a free country, but they haven't contributed to it. They don't know about it. They don't know how long it's going to last. They don't realize it could collapse on them. Mm. And so I started thinking about that. Maybe it's time for them to know what Americans have been through to keep this country free. And I ran across something that I read a long time ago, so I had to hunt for it, but I finally found it. <clears throat> Our pre uh, Thomas Jefferson once, once said, for a nation who is free and wants to remain free, we have to keep a strong militia and, eternal, and we have to maintain eternal vigilance. We don't seem to understand that in America anymore. Mm. We have people, uh, leadership who build up a little bit, then the next leadership will tear it down, the next leadership will do something different with it. But the true value of our military, if we don't maintain a strong military, then we are going to be overrun one day. These people that went to World War II, Korea, and all these, and Vietnam, and Iraq, and Afghanistan, what people don't understand is we're fighting these wars to keep them from occurring inside yeah. our borders. Yeah. So that was a motivation. I put all that together, and I just felt like I had to write. So after tell, telling them, yeah, I'll write a book <laughs> for like nine years, I just sat down in a matter of several months and wrote the book. And I think for forward. Christmas, what mom gave you three on three separate occasions, gave, her, gave him tape recorders and kept saying, just tape it. Yeah. Just tape your story for yeah. the family. And so she was the one pushing for years yeah. for him to do it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad that, that you've told it and are telling it. Um, it, it, it's hit me very, very hard. I, I, I think I was almost finished with the book and I texted Trisha and I said, I need your dad over here. I need, I need him on the podcast. I need to tell people about this book, this story, this man. And, uh, she said, Oh, we'll, we'll make it happen. And so gracious to just say, sure, I'll do that. Never met me. My, by the way, yeah, go to Amazon and get the book, but you can't have this one. This one 
was signed for me by Colonel Collier. You can't have this one. Um, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so grateful. Uh, I'm going to put the, the link to the book on the webpage and, um, I, we could go on and on because there's a whole, there's a whole set of stories to tell beyond the battle. The battle of Moduck is just an incredible, the way you told the story is just incredible. I felt like I was there and, uh, but I know there's so much more to it after that. And, um, I, I just appreciate it. I need, I need people to get this book and read it. You've heard me recommend a lot of books. This is one. It, it, you you got to get this. It's about. It's just about so many things. And I thank you, sir. And I thank you for your service and your leadership and uh, your work since you left the military. And I really thank you for carving out time. Thank you for the book. Thank you for this <laughs> this conversation. Thank yeah. you for having lunch with me today. Uh, what an honor. I'm just, I'm enriched and our, our listeners and viewers are enriched. Our lives are made better by it. So thank you. You're very kind, very gracious. Well, I appreciate it. Appreciate your kind words. Thank well, you, Patrick. It's, uh, if people need to hear it. Folks, um, really, I like go right now. Click on the link on the podcast page. Go get the book. Read it. It won't take you long. Trust me. It's, I mean, it's pretty, got a lot of content in it, but it won't take you long. By the way, great photographs in this and i really appreciate the fact when you get the book you're gonna you're gonna appreciate this the things that you describe in the book almost all of them you had you found a picture for it you know you get to see the overlay of the of the area that you were the weapons that were used the people uh in in the uh in the story with you and and pictures of you when you were younger and and 34 did you say when you were there Um, So I really appreciated the pictures too. So uh, get the book. Folks, I hope you uh, picked up a little something about leadership today. Um, It's about serving others. It's about doing the right thing. It's about doing the right thing even when people might not agree. Um, It's about faith. It's about ownership. It's about resilience, commitment, determination, not giving up. Uh, And it's about these are my people. These are my people. I love, I love the 11 of that. That's what leadership's about. Lead on, folks. 